Hello, rhetorical listeners. This is the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today's episode is another entry in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Amber Lee, a doctoral candidate from the University of South Carolina. One of the students in the class said to me afterwards, she said that um, learning about teaching made me feel differently about being a student. And I thought that that was just really cool. And, you know, one of the coolest moments of being in this program for me. There are a lot of cool moments, but that was pretty cool. More with Amber in a bit. On March 3rd, 2020, the Four Seas officers released a statement regarding the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak in the United States. Their email, Dear Colleagues, The upcoming Conference on College Composition and Communication annual convention scheduled for March 25th through 28th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin is currently scheduled to continue as planned. Please be assured that the health, safety, and well-being of everyone involved with the upcoming event is of utmost importance to 4Cs, a conference of NCTE. While the risk of contracting the coronavirus in the U.S. is currently reported as low, we are monitoring the situation closely. We are following the analysis of health and disease prevention professionals, such as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and we will continue to be in close communication with the Wisconsin Center. We have arranged for hand sanitizing stations to be placed throughout the convention center and will continue to seek precautionary measures recommended by health and disease prevention professionals. All prospective attendees should make decisions regarding participation in the event at their own discretion. Attendees may request a registration refund up until the first day of the convention with only a $25 processing fee. We will issue periodic updates as necessary. Updates will be posted to this webpage, the C's officers. As of this recording, 21 people have died in the United States from COVID-19. My, my own institution, Illinois State University, continues to monitor the situation and continues to notify students, faculty, and staff of updates via email and social media. Social media is where I found out the ATTW Executive Committee has revisited conversations about the conference, ATTWCon, and are video conferencing today about plans to moving forward. They're going to issue an update, hopefully, on Tuesday morning. Other conferences, too, continue to cancel. The Pacific Northwest Writing Centers Association Executive Board postponed the 2020 PNWCA conference, which was scheduled for April 10th and 11th at the University of Washington Bothell due to the COVID-19 outbreak. The Strasbourg Symposium on Usability and Design in France, which was promoted on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast last fall featuring Dr. Kirk St. Amant, is canceled. Updates on the 2021 Symposium are going to be circulated this year. South by Southwest Festival canceled in Austin, Texas. Today is March 9th, six days since the last update from the Conference on College Composition and Communication Officers. I do hope we hear more soon. Amber Lee is a doctoral candidate in Rhetoric and Composition at the University of South Carolina and has an MFA in Creative Writing Fiction from Emerson College in Boston. Her research focuses on rhetorical theory and memory, problematizing conventional conceptions of memory and its relationship to human oration, history, 
forgetting, and monumentalization. She teaches first-year English courses at the University of South Carolina, and her pedagogy often mixes rhetorical theory and scholarship with creative writing exercises. She is actively involved in the University of South Carolina's RSA chapter and enjoys running, baking, watching stand-up comedy, and entertaining her cat, Raja. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Amber Lee. I know that you're right now at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, but you got your bachelor's degree at Clemson University. I did. Are, are you from South Carolina? I was born in Michigan, but I grew up in South Carolina. So I grew up here since I was six. I lived in Irmo, went to Dutch Fork High School in Columbia, and then went to Clemson for my undergrad and then moved away for my master's, uh, but then ended up ultimately coming back for my PhD. Very cool. And your your BA was in English and you have a, a minor in Italian, which I think is super cool. I haven't <laughs> talked to anyone with a minor in Italian. And I know that you studied abroad too, right? I did. I studied in Italy for a year. Um, and that's partially why I got the minor, just because I had so many credits that it made sense to do it that way. Um, but that was over 10 years ago. And oh, devo praticare. <laughs> I need to practice because I have forgotten a lot of it. Well, I know that you're speaking Italian, but it's all Greek to me because I don't know any any Italian, but I think that's super cool. Which part of Italy were you studying in when you I did study? I was at uh, the University of Urbino, which is in Le Marche region, and it is one of the oldest institutions um, in Italy. It is a walled city, a Roman city. It was very, very cool. Also, um, kind of... When I went over there, and this was about 10 years ago now, um, I'm dating myself, but they didn't have Wi-Fi, internet, anything like that. You had to go to an internet cafe to talk to anybody, anything like that. So it was it was definitely a strange sort of dip in a weird um, cultural world that I, yeah. that I got used to, um, but was very different from what, what I had expected. That's really cool. So you're studying in Italy and getting your degree at Clemson University, and then you make an, a pretty big move, I would say, from from South Carolina up to Boston yes. to uh, Emerson College. Yes. Uh, Boston is one of my favorite cities in the oh, entire mine world. Too. <laughs> mine too. I'm in love. With it. Yeah. So you were there at two two years. Two years. Yep. Two, two years. Well, and two and a half years, more like. Yes. Um. I. I really, I was one of those, I was in the itch to like get out of South Carolina, you know, um, I wanted to get away from Columbia and got a scholarship at Clemson. So I ended up going there because it made the most financial sense. Right. Um, but then when I had the opportunity to go somewhere else for my master's, I wanted to get far away from the South and experience different things as, you know, a lot of people that age probably do. And I absolutely loved the city. I loved everyone that I met there and I loved the MFA program there. It was really a fantastic experience. Yeah, I um, I am from the South as well. And I itched to get out. I did not make it as cool as someplace like Boston. I made it to, I made it to the middle of Illinois, but, but I did make it out. Hey, you made it. You, you made it I out made of the it. South. <laughs> You say that as you're still back in the South, though. <laughs> I will. I'm hopefully leaving next year. So who knows? <laughs> who knows so where that goes? So you you got your MFA in creative writing at Emerson College, um, and and so I was w wondering what was that project about, and what did it become? 
that project is actually more linked to the project I'm doing now than I have realized in the past. Um, oh, isn't that great when you realize that? I'm sorry? Isn't it great when you make those connections? Uh, and I didn't even expect it to. I thought I was doing something completely different. No, but it's um, the project I did there was a linked short story collection uh, entitled Anywhere But Here, which I was informed is already a title of something already. Um, and so I have to retitle it if I ever want to do anything with it. Um, but yeah, it's a linked short story collection. And it centers around, um, strangely enough, as we just talked about my itch to get out of South Carolina, uh, but people who are from a fictional town in South Carolina called Garland, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it's either people looking to escape there or people looking to come back somehow after they've gotten out. So it's, it's kind of this, um, you know, it plays with, with nostalgia and yearning and kind of a yearning for something other than what is present at the time. Yeah. Hey, cool. Do you live in the city in Boston? I did. I lived in Brighton, actually, okay. right around Cleveland Circle. So uh, if you take, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Boston, but it's uh, its off the green line and you take the green line down in its city. And yeah, Emerson's right on Boylston and Tremont. So it was it was a really, I want to say spoiled time for me. It was really one. I, I, I felt, I look back and, you know, that, you know, I just mentioned, I'm like, oh, can I go back to that? That would be great. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you hear my dog barking in the background? I can. Hello, puppy. <laughs> Hello, puppy. Uh, he His name is Stanley, and uh, the weather is very bad here, so I couldn't put him out to record. So he's just going to have to be a part of this episode until I can cut him out in post-production. <laughs> oh, that's totally fine. My cat already jumped into the frame at one point. What's your cat's name? Her name is Raja. Raja. Uh, like the tiger from the Aladdin movie. Oh, I knew exactly what you're talking about. I just was yeah. about to make the reference before you did. Yeah, That's and she is royalty and she knows it. So. <laughs> so you're at the University of South Carolina. You're graduating in May with your PhD. Yes. Yes. That's exciting. Very. A lot of work has to happen before then, but it's exciting. Sure, sure. Yeah. sure. And you've put together what uh, appears to be a, a fantastic uh, dissertation committee with John Mucklebauer, led by John Mucklebauer. Yeah. Um, so I know you've been at, at, at South Carolina for about, you know, back at South Carolina for about five years now. This will be the end of five years. That's correct. Yes. So, so you've done it. And I know that you've done a ton of stuff there. I was looking through your CV, Amber, <laughs> and the, the number of hats that you've worn right, during <laughs> your time at South Carolina are many, very many. So I was wondering... Let's kind of approach it from the beginning and walk through some of your administration, administrative work, some of your editorial work, talk about some of your publications and your service to the field. Okay. So when you're when you were at Emerson College, perhaps looking in, into PhDs, and I know you've done some adjuncting here here and there too. I noticed York right. University on your CV and a couple other places. But I was wondering what drew you back to South Carolina. And I think what I'm noticing is a theme from your MFA and then like some meta actuality, right? And going yeah. back to South Coming Carolina. Back to, yes, exactly. I, I'm living the thing that I wrote that I didn't experience, that I didn't think that I would do. Yes. <laughs> Um, so what, go ahead. So what drove me back to uh, University of South Carolina? Is, well, is that I, I, that's my question. Yeah. What, what drew you back to that program, back to South Carolina? Well, when I was at Emerson, I had the amazing opportunity to work uh, under Dr. John Trimber, who is just a 
foundational figure in the composition world and an amazing mentor. And I was able to teach classes while I was at Emerson and realized that I absolutely loved teaching. I knew that publishing uh, fiction wasn't going to be the most lucrative uh, of positions that I could select coming out of graduate school with student loans, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, And that really solidified it for me that I wanted to teach. So at the time, after I graduated from Emerson, I moved to Idaho with my then fiance, uh, because he was in a PhD program out there. And I worked as a copy editor out there for a while and absolutely hated it. It was drudge work. And I knew then that I really wanted to go back to teaching. Mm -hmm. And I knew if I wanted to make it a real profession that I needed to get my PhD. Um, And so that's kind of what drove me into it. And what made me really want to do it is um, kind of a funny story. I emailed, I was looking into rhetoric programs and Mm -hmm. just Try, and I was feeling nostalgic and homesick, too, because I have two younger siblings. And so I was kind of like, oh, maybe South Carolina is not that bad. I don't really like Idaho very much. Like, I I, I love it now, but I don't want to live there anymore. Um, so yeah. anybody from Idaho, my apologies. But yes, um, I was kind of feeling, you know, disconnected from my family. And I noticed that University of South Carolina had just an amazing faculty, an amazing rhetoric program. And it just it looked really appealing to me. So I emailed Dr. Muckelbauer and he said, hey, come sit in on some of my classes if you want. And so we moved back to South Carolina because my my fiance got a job there and I sat in on a few of his classes. I applied to other places too, of course. Um, sat in on a few of his classes and fell in love with rhetorical theory and yeah. uh, applied and got in. And yeah, that's that's what led me back. You're, you're the first person I've talked to, I think, that had the experience of like going and sitting in a class, right, to kind of gauge how that might go. T- tell a little bit about that experience. How did you feel? What was that like? Things like that. Oh, my that. goodness. I, well, so many feelings. I felt so in over my head. Like, I didn't know how to spell anything. Like, I would go sit in there and, you know, he'd, he'd say Foucault and I would like spell it phonetically in my, in, and then go look it up later and be like, oh, that was French. That was wrong. I totally spelled that wrong. But um, just kind of uh, felt so in over my head and like very scared. Um, but after just doing the reading week after week, absolutely falling in love with it and not really knowing what else I could possibly do with my life. And, you know, the other students there too were just, I feel like they're my colleagues and friends for life. Um, I really felt a sense of community there that I had really not felt anywhere else. Even though I loved Boston and I loved uh, Clemson, I never really felt that kind of solidified camaraderie with both faculty and students. Um, And so it was just, it was an amazing experience and I was really happy that I got in. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I've talked to a couple of people, a couple of good folks from down there in South Carolina and you, you all really do seem like a really strong community. It's not just like saying that, like, you all like seem to know each other and, and, and work with each other. And I appreciate that. I mean, I was I was texting with my friend Trevor, who uh, graduated a couple of years ago. Trevor Meyer is well, yeah. Dr. Trevor Meyer now. And so, you know, I was texting with him earlier and he wished me good luck for this. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's great. It's it's a wonderful network of people. More with Amber after this. Hi everyone, my name is Paul Cook and I am at Indiana University Kokomo. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor FM. If you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRed. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. Welcome back. That's so cool. And I know one of the things that's come out of all of you all's hard work and community down there is the Carolina Rhetoric for English, one of the yeah. publications <laughs> uh, that you all use in your FYC program. And I know that you have had a great deal of and I know that you have had a pretty big impact on shaping that and what it looks like. Could you talk to us a bit about what that publication is, uh, how it's used in your program, and then your role with the publication? Sure. The Carolina Rhetoric is, well, it's a two-part thing. We have the uh, Carolina Reader for English 101 and Carolina Rhetoric for 102. Okay, and, okay. Uh, so it's a year-long kind of progression that students take. And it is an in-house publication, which means that uh, we take contributions from graduate students and faculty in-house. So write-ups, for example, on what the, the rhetorical canons are, right? So John Muckelbauer wrote um, the introduction to, I believe, delivery and style. Um, and I wrote the introduction to memory and then a few other people. You know, so it's just, it's kind of a, a group effort toward creating a pedagogical foundation for what rhetoric is and okay. the two-part I, I think I'm maybe not explaining this very well so it's a two-part book the first part is rhetorical concepts so you know the rhetorical canons stasis kairos ethos logos pathos those sort of rhetorical foundations and that's that, and that's going to be taught in a class like English 101 that's 102 we do it 102 that's one okay. Of, right. Uh, so English 101 is critical reading and writing, and so it's more literature based. And then 102 is where they transition to rhetoric. I um, see. And so it it starts off with you know canons, and then it goes into other kind of Greek concepts, and then argumentation models for structuring arguments like the Toulmin model, um, things like that. And that so that's that's the first half of the book, which is kind of explanatory concepts for, for rhetoric students, which link to readings in the second part. Um, you know, for example, we have Nietzsche's Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. We have, um, what are some other things? We have part excerpts from Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. We have Ed Said's um, from Orientalism. So excerpts from sort of theoretical and some popular culture too in the back that, that explain those sorts of concepts in action, for lack of a better term. That is so cool. Okay, I'll, first of all, 
have so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, uh, talk <laughs> to you about about this book, The Carolina Rhetoric of the Carolina Reader. We also do an in-house publication here at ISU. <laughs> And follow a similar format and taking contributions from graduate students and other students on campus and things like that. So what I always find fascinating about in-house publications like this used in like writing programs is the unique ways that students are using the text in, in the classroom, right? right? So I wonder what, what are some unique things you've done with this text or perhaps some unique things that, you know, as an administrator, you've heard other students you, uh, doing with this text. Well, I guess the example that I'll bring it to is uh, selfishly to bring it back to myself a little bit. That's okay. Um, this is about you I, anyway, Amber. No, I, I adopted Ben Harley, actually, my friend who I mentioned before, did a fantastic job of rehauling the structure of it um, that I then took and sort of rehauled it again a little bit. So it was his original concept in his baby, and then I changed about 50% of it when I came in. Um, but I wanted it to be read um, like Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, like a rhizome, right? So you could pick anything from the first section and pair it with anything from the second. It doesn't matter what, but they would be able to talk to each other. Um, so when I structured it that way, and I also um, wanted to have for lack of a better word, uh, I wanted to decolonize the second section of it. I wanted sure. to have voices perhaps that hadn't been heard before in the second section. Um, but the cool thing that that was able to do is that when I made the syllabus for it, I could do four or five options for instructors to do with each reading, right? So if you're talking about memory, you can pair it with this text from the second part, this one, this one, right? So they had all of these options to pair um, or a selection of their choice. So if they weren't comfortable teaching Judith Butler, then they could teach something uh, that they felt more comfortable doing. Um, and I really, I had some strong feedback from the first year instructors uh, who said that that kind of freedom made them feel more confident as instructors to not be told exactly what they needed to do, but to have kind of confidence in choosing what they wanted, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And, and as, a, like as a graduate student writing program administrator, right. I, a former graduate student writing program administrator, what I would say is that establishing that confidence, especially for students who aren't, haven't taught before, Right. should be like a paramount concern for writing program administrators. Oh, of course, definitely. I I also had the experience because I was, when I was editor of the book, I was also uh, in tandem helping to teach a graduate seminar uh, with Dr. Chris Holcomb about how to teach the class, right? So it's, it's how to teach English 102 to first-year instructors. And it was just really cool to see like how scared they were because everybody is when you first start teaching and then just oh yeah confidence kind of build and um one of my students actually not my students my colleagues but one of the students in the class said to me afterwards she said that um learning about teaching made me th feel differently about being a student and I thought that that was just really cool and you know yeah. one of the coolest moments of being in this program for me there are a lot of cool moments but that was pretty cool that is very cool very very cool Oh, Amber, where should we go next? Uh, I noticed that you were awarded the Russell J. and Dorothy S. Belinsky Dissertation Fellowship I was. last year. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You've actually held a handful of, of, of fellowships. What did the Belinsky uh, Fellowship allow you to do with your dissertation? Well, it was. I am very grateful to that foundation. It's just, it was a wonderful opportunity, and I'm very honored. It is a prestigious uh, fellowship that allowed me 
to simply work on my dissertation for a year. Uh, it, it it was a thirty-five thousand uh, dollar fellowship with uh, twenty-five hundred dollars for travel if I needed it, and I didn't have to teach the entire year, so it bought me out of my teaching um, requirement for being a graduate student. It was it was just a wonderful year to be able to research and not have grading. I love teaching very much, but to be able to just focus on one project for an entire year was just a really wonderful experience and exercise in what it means to be a research scholar. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, 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 it was challenging at times, but also just really amazingly wonderful for me to be in the spot that I'm in now with my dissertation. Um, I absolutely would not be here without it. You may, you may feel like this, this question answers itself. And if it does, we can just cut it out. But I wonder, like, when you receive an opportunity like that, how do you go about reprioritizing? So I thought of it, I I had to restructure my expectations a lot. Right, right. Uh, Because when I first went into it, and I have, and having never done some, I've written a thesis before, but that was a collection of creative writing. And it's as difficult as that is, it's very different than doing a research project. It's not that one is more difficult than the other, it's just that my mental process had to be different. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't really sure how to go about doing this thing. Um, and so when I first entered into it, I was like, all right, I am going to write a chapter a month and I'm gonna have a draft of it on the 15th, send it to John and then get his feedback and revise it by the 30th every month, right? I am going to do this. And then it's like the first month goes by and I just felt bogged down and like, oh my God, I'm not meeting my deadlines. And John just sat me down. He's like, these are your deadlines you made for yourself. He was like, you are fine. Like you need to. And so then it went, so then I restructured it and I went to, okay, I want to write a thousand words a day. Like, and if I can do that, then I'll be, I'll be good. And then usually it was more like seven or 800 words a day. And then I'd go back and delete half of it the next day or something like that. So it's, it was just kind of this recursive process that I had to keep at. Um, And, you know, like, I think anybody in this field might be familiar with the hardest part is just getting started and just keeping at it. Even when you don't feel like what you're saying has any, any value behind it, just trying to keep at it. That's so cool. I think that's good advice too. And I am definitely with you on like the hardest part being getting started sometimes. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So where should we go next? What else do you want to talk about? Um, Are you on the job market right now? I am. I also, I guess before we move on to now, one of a a very proud moment for me uh, in this program was getting to, I was the president of RSA, the RSA chapter at USC. Yeah. When I was there, we host a conference uh, triannually called the Carolina Rhetoric Conference. And it's a regional conference people from Clemson come, people from Georgia, people from NC State. Um, It's kind of grown in recent years. And I was lucky enough to be president president of this organization um, when we hosted the CRC. So I got to know what it was like to produce a regional conference, which was really cool. What is that like? I've never done that. 
stressful. Um, <laughs> 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 Listeners no, are probably like, the answer to that is stressful. <laughs> but, but it is, but it's also, it gives you an inside look as what it is to develop something like a CFP, right? What should our, what should our theme be? What should our call for papers be? What do we value um, at our institution? What do we want people to see us valuing? That sort of thing. Um, what are we interested in? What are the contours of discussions that are happening now that are, you know, on the, on the brink of something that is totally interesting. Um, so to develop something like that and then to get, um, you know, submissions from all over the region and read through them. After you read through so many, you realize things that you don't want to read anymore and things that maybe you shouldn't do when you apply to other conferences. So that was, that was a learning experience. Um, also, just the figuring out where the money is going to come from and doing that academic work of calling the, I, I called Macmillan and I said, hey, you, you published the Carolina Rhetoric. Could you give us some money for this conference if we let you have a booth and sell books there, right? So it's figuring out that those kind of monetary logistics, which are a lot of times not very fun, but absolutely necessary in this field as well. Um, you know, figuring out keynote speakers and seeing the whole thing come together, though, was a really, it felt like a, it, it felt like a baby almost. <laughs> it, felt, it felt like this was a really cool thing that happened and went out in the world. So I was, I was pretty proud of that. And I, I didn't do it on my own. I don't mean it that way. I did it uh, again with Ben Harley and uh, Kelly Wheeler, who is now at the University of Michigan. She was just absolutely phenomenal in, in coordinating and liais liaising. Is that a word? Uh, with, with everything. I absolutely could not have done it without them. I don't know if that's a word, but I do know Kelly and she's fantastic. She's amazing. Yes. For sure. <laughs> When's the next uh, Carol uh, Carolina Rhetoric Conference? So it's held every year, and actually, I did it three years ago. It will be here again this year, okay. and it's going to be in February. Um, my like successor three times down the road, her name is uh, Heather Busby. She's the current president, and she's just doing a fantastic job with it so far. So, so you're on the job market now. You're hitting that uh, pretty hard, I guess, as you finish up the dissertation. Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot or anything like that, but I wondered if you had any – any words about your experience uh, on the job market so far or hanging in there, I guess? Yeah, I guess you're hanging in there since I'm talking to you. I'm hanging in there. Yes. It, you know, I made the mistake or the, I, I don't want to use the word mistake. It was a mistake for me because it freaked me out. I read uh, Catherine Hume's what to, or how to survive your academic job hunt uh, over the summer. Mm -hmm. And I had in my head that I had to do everything all at once. Um, and, I talked to John about it a little bit and he was like, no, put it away. Don't think about it. Just work, finish your dissertation first and then worry about the job market. Um, but my experience with it so far has just been, you know, it makes me really consider what stakes my dissertation has in this field. Right. And at the end of last year, I was kind of wondering if what I had to say had an, you know, imposter syndrome kind of thing and trying to pitch it, uh, to people on a committee has made me like what I'm doing a bit more. So that's been a good experience that has come out of it. Um, you know, and just being confident in, in what I'm doing and where I'm going as a scholar is, is always kind of difficult for, I think, a lot of people, but it forces you to do that. And I think that's a good thing. Yes. Thank you for those words. I think that they're words, but they're also um, advice too, right? 
about him. I don't know if you want to take advice from me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Let's see if I get a job first. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. You mentioned your dissertation. Have you titled your dissertation yet? Or is that the last thing you're going to do? It has a temporary title right now. It is Rethinking Rhetorical Memory, um, Linearity in the Fourth Canon, something like that. I probably botched it. I haven't memorized it, which shows you exactly the kind of ties that I have to the title. (laughs) Um, It it will probably change until the end. For sure. Could you give us an overview of that project? Sure. Uh, So, I mean, as the title, kind of the working title implies, it is focused on rhetorical memory. And so what I do is I'm taking it up um, in the sense that while the majority of discourse on memory right now um, agrees that memory is not just something that is linked to being or existence or anything like that, right? We can't like point to a memory and say, aha, that's the exact thing, right? We can't hold on to them, um, even though a lot of metaphors talk about storehouses and things like that, right? So current scholarship recognizes it as something other than that kind of being or existence. Um, However, memory scholarship is also structured by the assumptions of an essentialist ontology and linear rationality. Um, And that imports a long held kind of privileging of human meaning making and heuristics. And so when it relies on this linearity of time, past, present, future, or this like pointing at something as existing or being, that becomes really problematic for the way that we understand how memory works. And so even though a lot of scholars are saying, no, this isn't how it works, they're smuggling in these kind of westernized assumptions about how it works with the, about, with the way that they treat it. Um, so yeah, I, I start with the way that memory has been uh, treated through metaphor, and I go back to, you know, Greek systems and mnemonics and things like that. And I trace them through Francis Yates and Mary Carruthers' amazing books, The Art of Memory and The Medieval Craft of Memory. And so I trace metaphors through that and show how much as Francis Yates does, the metaphors that we have influence the way that we think. Uh, So the metaphors that we have about memory influence the way that we think and the way that we write about it. Um, Another one of my chapters takes up Derrida's hauntology. And so I look at memory as kind of a specter. Um, and I take it through Michelle Balif, who talks about hauntology in relation to historiography. Uh, and I argue that, you know, if, if we're going to take public memory, for example, as something that is serious, then we can't keep rooting it back in this ontology. And what would it look like if we took it in a hauntological direction? Hauntological direction. Hauntological direction. It is a play on ontological that Derrida punningly comes up with as, you know, very characteristic for him in uh, Spectre's remarks. Very cool. Very cool. Well, best of luck to you as you dive in and finish that up and dive into the next job market application and all of those things. What are you going to do this afternoon? I... I'm working on my introduction right now for uh, for my dissertation. So I, I sent a draft of it to, to John a couple of days ago, but I want to go back and look at it again because I want to send it to my other committee members too, because they're, they're writing me letters right now and they uh, have requested some of that stuff for the research portion of those letters. Well, hopefully talking through it and giving an overview gets you in the zone and ready to go back to it this afternoon. It does. It's been, it's been rejuvenating. Thank you. Excellent, Amber. It was so great to chat with you. I look forward to meeting you in person. I hope you have a great afternoon.
Thank you. conversation with Amber Lee. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Rhett and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com and you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.